Well, who can tell me what, what animal is pictured on the screen? What animal is pictured on the screen? We've got three hands over here, so we'll go Clayton. That is a dodo bird. That's right. Or at least it's an artist's rendition of a dodo bird. It's an artist's rendition because, well, what's the dodo bird famous for? What? Being extinct. That's what the dodo bird is famous for. It's extinct. The dodo was an odd-looking bird discovered on the island of Mauritius, which is east of Madagascar in the Indian Ocean. But within a hundred years of its being discovered, it was extinct due to hunting and human introduction to the island of other animal species and disease. The dodo was one of the first animal extinctions that drew attention to the effect uh, that human exploration and expansion has on animal species. And it has since become sort of a symbol for extinction. When you say something's gone the way of the dodo, everyone knows what you're talking about. Unfortunately, unfortunately, many animal species have gone extinct for a variety of different reasons. But when an animal species does go extinct, it not only affects that species, but other animals and plant species in the ecosystem as well. Scientists call this phenomenon an ecological cascade effect. And it simply refers to a series of secondary effects that are triggered by the extinction of one species... So basically, it's trickle-down extinction. Well, there's another thing that's on the verge of extinction, and it too has had a trickle-down effect and impacted a lot of other things. It's not an animal, uh, not a plant, um, but it is a practice, a practice in the church. It's the practice of church discipline. Church discipline is all but extinct, at least in the American church. And because church discipline is all but extinct, various other problems have trickled down into the church body. Today's text, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, uh, you can go ahead and turn there if you would like, or you can use one of the uh, Bibles in the seat baskets in front of you. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we have one of the key passages in the Bible regarding church discipline and how it's to happen in the church. We come to today's text as the next step in our chronological verse-by-verse journey through the earthly life and ministry of Jesus. Now, to understand the context of today's passage, we need to go back to the beginning of chapter 18, where we find Jesus correcting his disciples' notion of greatness. They wanted to know who was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus brings forth a child and teaches them that they must humble themselves, that is, take on the status or the standing of a child. And a child was a nobody in society. They had to take on that status of a nobody if they wanted to enter the kingdom, much less be great in the kingdom. He then goes on to say that not only must we be a nobody like this child, we must also be willing to receive and minister to other nobodies, other children of God. But not only does Jesus positively teach us that, we are, that his disciples are to minister to each other, he also negatively cautions his disciples against causing each other to stumble. The warnings are strong, as we saw last week. But after last week, we're kind of left with a question. Okay, I know we are not to sin against one another and cause each other to stumble. But what happens? What are we to do when we do sin against each other? How are we to handle sin in the church? 
Well, that brings us to the rest of chapter 18, both in today's text, verses 15 through 20, and in next week's text, verses 21 through 35, that question is answered for us. Now, in today's text, we're taught on how to face a brother who sins against us. And in the subsequent text, next week, we're going to be taught how to forgive a brother who sins against us. And both must take place. You cannot have the discipline passage from today without the forgiveness passage of next week. Some people do use church discipline as a club to beat up people who, while ignoring the call to forgive. But perhaps more commonly in our day, people ignore the call to address sin in the church while using the forgiveness passage from next week to simply sweep everything under the rug. But that's why I love the scriptures. They're always, they always give us a perfect balance if we'll simply have ears to hear. So Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. Please stand with me, if you would, as we read these words of life this morning. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. These are uh, the words of our Lord Jesus Christ as he is teaching his disciples. Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Let's pray. Perfect Heavenly Father, we know that every word that comes from you is likewise perfect. And so we praise you for this text. Thank you for it. And we pray this morning that you would help us apply it to our own congregational setting, apply it to our own interaction with other believers, and help us to love one another enough to take this text very seriously. So Lord, I pray that you would help us understand it, help us to receive it, give us hearts that are, that are, that are like soil that's been tilled and ready to receive the word. And Lord, may that word produce fruit in each one of us, myself included. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Now, as you can tell from your notes, um, if you look at the the bulletin there, as you can tell from your notes, we have a lot of ground to cover. Some of y'all looked at that and probably freaked out, thinking, we're going to be here until like 2. Don't worry, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we're going to jump right in. And the first thing I want to do is go ahead and give you the two main points of the text which will serve as headings for our subpoints. So, so these are the two main things that are being communicated in the text. Number one is that Jesus delineates the steps for confronting sin. And number two, Jesus determines the jurisdiction for confronting sin. So he lays out the steps and he decides how and where that's to be handled. So he, he delineates the steps and he determines the jurisdiction. So let's start with that first point. Jesus delineates the steps for confronting sin. And the first step is simply found in verse 15. 
If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So here's the first step. The offended meets privately for the purpose of exhortation. The offended meets privately, and that's privately with the offender. The offended meets privately for the purpose of exhortation. When I was a kid, I used to have a model train. And I remember the Christmas I received the model train. And we tried using it that morning, and we couldn't get it to stay on the track. We put the engine and the cars on the track, and it would only go a foot or so before the whole train would just tip over on its side. After some investigation, my dad and I discovered that the, the first car had a, had a stuck wheel so that as soon as the train began to make a turn, uh, the, the stuck wheel would just cause the whole train to come off the track and then the other cars would derail as well. Dealing with a brother who sins against us begins with a one-on-one meeting to address the issue. This is so simple and so basic, but it is here in this very first step where so many get off track. This is where relationships in the church so often derail. Right here, at the very beginning, this is where relationships derail. It seems so simple, but because of our sinful fallen nature, it is not. Our sinful nature makes it very hard to do two things when it comes to relationships. Number one, administer rebuke lovingly. And number two, receive rebuke humbly. Our sinful nature makes both of those things very difficult. To administer proper, loving rebuke and to receive rebuke in a humble way. When either one of those two things are missing, the process can and often does simply derail. And Because relationships can get so messy, our sinful desire is to simply ignore this very clear command of our Lord Jesus. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now let us make a note at the outset that this text is dealing with a personal offense. We need to get that. Not every sin in the church is dealt with and confronted in the same manner. Sometimes there are sins committed not privately, but publicly. And such sins sometimes warrant a more public redress, especially if the sin is causing others to stumble. A great example of this is simply found in Galatians chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. And let me just read the text for you. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul speaking. But when Cephas, and Cephas is, is Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Listen to verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? I don't think that anyone can accuse Paul of violating Matthew 18. By not taking Peter aside and talking to him privately about this. It was a different situation demanding a different type of confrontation. Other sins are so publicly scandalous uh, that more more extreme measures are required immediately. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 
Paul is dealing with a very public, very shameful sin in the church. And he doesn't want the church to go through all these first steps. Instead, he jumps immediately to the final step of having the brother removed from the church. In that case, the sin was, was, was not private, not a private personal offense, but a very public scandal. And to not deal with it directly and swiftly would have brought disrepute to the church in the eyes of an onlooking world. So we need to see that today's text is specifically addressing personal sins committed against one another. And they have to be serious sins, not petty or trivial ones. Now it's true that all sin, vertically speaking, between man and God is cosmic treason worthy of an eternal hell. But not all sin, horizontally speaking, between man and man is a personal offense worthy of this type of confrontation. Proverbs 19.11 teaches us that it is a man's glory to overlook an offense. And Proverbs 10.12 teaches us that love covers all offenses. And the Apostle Peter apparently quotes that very proverb in 1 Peter 4.8 saying, Keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And so that overlooking of sin, that should happen a lot in the church. The majority of sins in the church that we commit against one another are most likely petty, trivial, and not worthy of any sort of formal confrontation. What Jesus is talking about here in today's text are sins that create an unreconciled state, that destroy fellowship, that breed division, that that present a danger to the offender. And so for the good of the offender and for the good of the church, the sins must be addressed. So we must, we must guard against invoking 1 Peter 4, 8 to avoid dealing with major sin in the church. And we also must guard against invoking Matthew 18, 15 to confront minor sins in the church. Sometimes overlooking a sin is the way to cover a multitude of sins. But sometimes confronting the sin is the way to cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 20 says... Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and listen to this, and will cover a multitude of sins. So the scripture talks about covering a multitude of sins in two different ways. Sometimes by overlooking the offense, other times by confronting it and bringing the brother back. There's two different ways to cover a multitude of sins, and we need wisdom and discernment to know when to do that and when not to. It takes a lot of wisdom in the church. So from the outset, this should change how we confront one another. Before we ever go to a brother or a sister in Christ, number one, we must pray for the offender. We must pray for wisdom. We must pray for discernment. We must examine how objective the sin is. Is it a matter of opinion or is it something objective? We must examine whether or not we have just cause. And we must examine our own motives. We must be motivated by love. We must be marked by gentleness. And we must be models of humility. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. If you've done this, if you've examined yourself, then Jesus says, go. Meaning it must be a personal one-on-one, face-to-face meeting. Don't write a letter. Don't write an email. And by all means, don't send a text. But go. And tell him his fault. Now in the Greek, these five words, uh, tell him his fault. These four words, tell him his fault, okay? Tell him his fault 
uh, are merely one word in the Greek. And the word means to convict. It's a legal term. The idea is to go and show him the evidence of his own sin and convict him, help him come to the right verdict regarding his own sin. And you have to do this between you and him alone. The Greek is emphatic here. Personal sins are to be dealt with personally. It's not to be done in a committee. It's not to be disguised as prayer request in a meeting. It's not, it's to be, it is to be done one-on-one and alone. And we must encourage one another to do this. When someone comes to you and begins to share a grievance that they have against another person, then first, if it's petty, encourage them to obey 1 Peter 4, 8. But if it's causing a breach in their ability to relate to the other person, then don't listen to them anymore and tell them emphatically to go. Go to the other person. And then listen no more. They either need to go or let go. It's really that simple. They cannot be allowed to harbor bitterness nor start gossip. So we are to go. And the text continues. If he listens to you, you have gained, literally won, your brother. If he listens to you, this, this verb, listens to you, doesn't mean that he has to fully agree with you. Now, this is important. The word means that he has a receptive attitude. He is taking it in with humility. A lot of times, this is simply the first step in a long and respectful discussion between two people who are working out significant differences. If someone says something like, listen, I, I don't see that sin in my life, but I sure am glad you've brought it to my attention, and I want to see it. Can you help me work through this? Can you help me understand this better? If that's the case, even if there isn't some initial repentance, don't go to the next step here. Keep going to the person. Keep working with the person so long as they are listening and they are open to correction. We only move to the next step when, as we read in verse 16, he does not listen. Meaning he refuses to even consider what you have to say. He is hardened to your words. He shows no humility, no receptivity. Then and only then do you move to the next step, which is this. The witnesses are brought in for the purpose of examination. The witnesses are brought in for the purpose of examination. The call for witnesses is based on, based on the old covenant civil law found in Deuteronomy 19.15 that required two or three witnesses to be present before any legal charge could be brought against anyone. And here Jesus is applying it in a new covenant context to the church. It's been well noted that the witnesses here are not witnesses to the offense. How could they be if it's a personal offense? Rather, they are to be witnesses to the attempt to exhort and correct. They are witnesses to the attempt to reconcile the relationship. They are not two or three people that the offended person rallies to his side to help him to go on the attack against the offender, but they are to be neutral witnesses who will, by virtue of their neutrality, do a few things. Number one, they'll evoke honesty from the one bringing the charge. If you're bringing other people in, then, then the witnesses are to examine the one bringing the charge as well. Are you being honest here? Are you misrepresenting the situ situation? So that's one purpose of the witnesses. Secondly, they'll bring an added weightiness to the whole situation. More people are getting involved now. Thirdly, they'll bring in new voices that perhaps the offender is now willing to listen to. Now that there's some other people involved, maybe, maybe that's someone they'll listen to now. The witnesses being neutral actually bring pressure to bear on both sides of the situation. 
I remember a seminary professor who spoke to us about situations in his pastoral experience where, where bringing in witnesses actually helped diffuse the situation by showing the one who was bringing the charge that the offense was either petty or that it was simply a misunderstanding. But bringing in witnesses is a serious step. So it requires wisdom and discernment. Not only regarding when to bring in witnesses, but who to bring in. Witnesses must be people who are trustworthy, discreet, impartial, and who have exhibited good judgment in the past. And it's also important to let the offender know that you are bringing in others before you meet with him. This is not an intervention. He doesn't walk into the room and there's a bunch of people there. You let him know, listen, I'm, I'm going to bring some other people to, to examine this situation and help us through this situation. That knowledge itself, that others are being brought in and that his sin is about to be more in the open, may itself produce the repentance that we're looking for. And while I'm on the subject of repentance, friends, please know that an apology is not the same thing as repentance. I'm sorry is not biblical repentance. So the interaction can't be like this. The offender, I'm sorry that I hurt you. The offended, oh, that's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay. Here's how it needs to go. The offender, I have sinned against you, and I'm asking you to please forgive me. The offended says, I love you, and yes, I forgive you. An apology is not the same thing as true biblical repentance. The goal of repentance is restoration and reconciliation, but sadly, sometimes repentance is far from the heart of the one who has sinned against another, so it forces the situation to be taken to the next step. And the next step is simply this. The church is made aware for the purpose of correction. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, the witnesses, tell it to the church. The verb refuse to listen in, chapter, in, I mean, in verse 17 is a different Greek verb than the one used in regards to refusal to listen in verse 16. This verb is stronger. It implies an increased hardening of the heart. The refusal to listen is now a digging in of the heels and a hardened disposition. Again, if the person doesn't necessarily see his or her sin but is willing to be taught, then there may be an ongoing discussion even with the witnesses. But if he or she stubbornly refuses to consider the concerns of those who have come to him or her in love, then the church must get involved. And the church must get involved out of love. Loving concern for the condition, even for the eternal destiny of the one who is digging in his heels. Proverbs 29.1 says this. He who is often reproved, yet stiffens his neck, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. That should be a, that should be a frightening verse. And so love demands a rebuke. Proverbs 27.5, better is open rebuke than hidden love. It is a loving thing for the church to confront one who is refusing to deal with their sin. And so now we must ask, ask what, what does it mean then to tell it to the church or to take it to the church? How is that done? Does it mean that next Sunday you just fold so-and-so's unrepentant sin into the announcement time? And we're going to Clarkson this week. Oh, and by the way, so-and-so is not repenting of their sin. Does it mean that um, you put it in the bulletin? Of course not. There is much wisdom and 
discernment and discretion that needs to be practiced. And I think that wisdom demands that the first step of taking a sin before the church is to bring the elders into the situation. In the nine marks, if you don't know what nine marks is, it's a ministry um, that Mark Dever has up at his church that really focuses a lot on ecclesiology and how churches handle these type of things. And in the nine marks study on church discipline, we have these helpful words. Quote, Jesus' instructions in Matthew 18 are not a maximum standard, but a minimum one. In other words, none of this means that you can't do more than Jesus commands. You just can't do less. So, for example, Jesus does not mention taking the, talking to the elders before taking the matter to the whole church. Yet, that is typically an appropriate step to take. We know that God teaches us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 14, verse 40, that all things in the church should be done decently and in order. And part of the order that God has given the church is elder leadership. Again, this probably isn't a quick process. It's not uncommon for elders to spend weeks and even months trying to work with someone through a specific sin. So long as it's not a 1 Corinthians 5 grievous public scandalous sin that is bringing undue shame and harm to the body. Yet even with elder intervention... There is often a failure to recognize and repent of sin, and thus the elders will refer the situation to the church body as a whole. And this, at this point, we shift. We shift from informal church discipline to formal church discipline. And when the matter is made aware to the church, the hope is that many others in the church will now reach out to the offender and urge him to repent. Galatians 6, 1 was read earlier, but I want to read it again. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, the church body, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now listen to this, though. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. When the, when the matter is taken to the church now, the, the, the command to the church is now be careful. Keep watch because the temptation is to be drawn into hearing the offender's side of the story instead of trusting the witnesses and the elders who have brought this to the church body and then get drawn into a divisiveness. At this point, the offender's fellowship in the body will be affected by his or her sin and hopefully the impact of that will lead to repentance. Second. Thessalonians 3, verses 14 through 15. Listen to this. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, that, that text just captured me this week. It tells us that if we have a brother in the church that's not obeying the gospel, obeying God's word, we are to avoid him. So that he might be ashamed. And then it says that is essentially treating him like a brother. That's what you do with a brother who's straying. You're not treating him like an enemy. We think our flesh says, well, when you're ignoring somebody and, and, and they're having to be ashamed of their behavior, well, that's, that's, that's enemy-like behavior. But the scripture says, no, that's brother-like behavior if you truly love the person. And so, if after it's been brought to the church... And it becomes clear that he or she will not repent. Then for the health of the body and for the good of the, of the unrepentant sinner, they need to be removed from membership, which is the last step. The sinner is put out for the purpose of restoration. Second half of verse 17. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. 
Remember, this is, remember that Matthew is the gospel most geared towards the Jewish audience. So this phrase, Gentile and tax collector, was simply a Jewish metaphorical expression meant to point out that someone was an outsider. They were outside of God's people. They were an unbeliever. And so that's what he's saying here. Treat them like an unbeliever. This means that the person is removed from membership and treated as someone who is not part of the body of Christ. Removal, removal from membership does not mean that he, he or she cannot attend church. We actually want him to come back to the church to hear the gospel and be convicted of sin and truly repent and be saved. But it does mean that he no longer participates with the church as a member, nor, he share, nor does he share in the privileges of membership. And his relationship with those who are in the body is now very different. Paul teaches us in that 1 Corinthians 5 passage not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It's hard to discern exactly how this is to be fleshed out in everyday life, but it's clear that we are not to continue to have a brotherly fellowship with one who has been put out of the church lest we bring reproach to the name of Christ. One of my favorite preachers to occasionally listen to is a guy um, out in Utah, I believe, named Brian Borgman. Brian Borgman put it this way. If the unrepentant person wants to come and seriously talk about these things with you over a cup of coffee or over dinner, that's fine. But if they come and say, hey, let's go play golf, let's hang out together, then no, that's not fine. For there is a rift between the two of you, and that cannot go unaddressed. Life can't just go on as normal, not at least if we understand what the body of Christ truly is. And so the aim of excommunication is actually love. Church discipline is ultimately for the good of the person. First, it is for them to see their sin and repent. Paul speaks in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 20 of two people who were causing problems in the church. And he said this, I have handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul says something similar in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, you are to deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Notice that in both passages, the goal of turning them over to Satan is for their good, that they may repent and be saved. So first, removal from membership is designed for the sinner to see their sin and repent. But secondly, it is ultimately designed to bring restoration, to bring them back. And so we have these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 where Paul is trying to help the church restore a brother who had previously been put out of the church but now has repented. Verse 6, for such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Now how those... Now, look at the text here. See how the numbers have increased as we go through the text. The sinner is first confronted by one, then by two or three more, then by the whole church, and then in a very real way, by being put out of the church, he's confronted by the world. And so in all this, we see Jesus is designed for church discipline, and we see something very significant. We see the priority and the importance of the church itself. And so with that, let me quickly consider our second point this morning. Number two, Jesus determines the jurisdiction for confronting sin. Jurisdiction simply meaning uh, the, the sphere of authority. 
As we have been involved, as my family, Heather and I, have been involved in the legal proceedings regarding the girls, we've learned a lot about jurisdictions and who has authority in what county to make this decision or that decision. And sometimes that can be very cloudy and unclear. But in this text, things are crystal clear. The authority to exercise discipline resides on the shoulders of the church. This is one of those texts that drives us as a church body and as Baptists to believe in elder-led congregationalism. And there are two things in these final few verses that I want us to see in regards to the jurisdiction that the church has to exercise church discipline. First, Jesus tells the church to exercise his authority. Jesus tells the church to exercise his authority. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is a greatly abused text. It is often, matter of fact, almost every time I hear it, it is ripped out of this context and used as some sort of spiritual warfare verse. But this verse is about the authority of the church to carry out discipline and how that authority is backed up by God's heavenly authority. This is a visible example of God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. This is almost a word-for-word repetition of Matthew 16, verse 19. And in that text, you'll remember, Peter confesses on behalf of the disciples that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And, and it's after that, and based upon that confession, that Jesus says this in Matthew 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So this text here today is a fleshing out of what Jesus said earlier. This text today is about the keys to the kingdom, meaning that the church has been given by God's authority in heaven the power to open and close the doors of the church. And I'm not referring to the physical building. If that sounds a bit weighty to you and overwhelming, it should. For we should see how heavy of a responsibility it is for the church to receive people into the body and to remove people from the body. This is a huge congregational responsibility, not merely one that rests on the shoulders of the elders. Jesus continues, verse 19, And I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This is another horribly abused text. Friends, this text is not primarily about prayer. You can't go get two of you and go lay your hand on a Bentley and say, Oh, we want this. We agree, and it's ours. That's absolutely ridiculous. Jesus is not teaching here that there is some magical power to prayer when two people are gathered together. There are plenty of texts that teach us about the power of effective prayer. But the two referred to here have to be read in context. Context is the key to biblical interpretation. And the context here namely points us back to verse 16. The two refers back to the witnesses that have been brought forth. And if they agree on the matter, it carries much weight. To help us see this, let me delve into the Greek a little bit more. The text says, if two of you agree on earth about anything, that word anything could and I think should be translated any dispute. The word does have a variety of meanings in the Greek, such as a deed or an act or a transaction. But it really helps us if we look at 1 Corinthians 6 verse 1. We see the word used when we read this, quote, When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? The word in that passage, grievance, 
is the exact same word translated here as anything. And in that text, just like in today's text, what they're dealing with is others coming in, other brothers coming in to help settle a dispute. And so in the context of confronting sin and bringing in witnesses, I think that the two are coming to agreement on the, the guilt regarding this dispute. And thus when they seek God and when they agree together about the situation and they take the matter to the church, they can have assurance that the Father will help them. They, in other words, have heavenly backup. I can just speak to my experience of having to deal with confrontation in the church. And there's been many times I've gone into a situation and I have no idea how to handle this. None whatsoever. I feel so weak, so inadequate, my stomach is flipping upside down, only to see at the end of that how God worked in a mighty way because God is with you when you're following the proper steps of confronting sin in the church. And so in these verses, we see that Jesus tells the church to exercise his authority, but we also see something very vital, something that gives us the strength and the courage to do exactly what he has commanded us to do. And that is, we see this, that Jesus tells the church to expect his presence. He tells the church to expect his presence. Verse 20, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Again, this is not a text about prayer meetings. Or worship services. It is a text about discipline. Notice again the two or three. Again, it's a reference back to verse 16. When these issues are brought before the church by the witnesses, we can trust that Jesus himself is with us. Now we need to see that what Jesus is talking about here is much more than just his eternal presence with his people through his indwelling spirit, which is what he teaches us in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And that is very much true indeed. But what we see in this verse is is that if we have done the steps here listed by Jesus, then Jesus himself now joins with the witnesses. He now becomes a fourth witness. He's not just among us to help us. He is among us to carry out the judgment. And that truth alone should cause anyone who is sinning, who is stuck in unrepentant sin, to tremble. This last verse should be terrifying. For it is sincerely a scary thing to think that if you stubbornly refuse reproof, after you've been approached by a brother, after witnesses have been brought in, and after the church has gotten involved, you are now fighting against the living head of the church himself, Jesus Christ. So in conclusion, what are we, the church, to do with all of this? If all that I have laid out in today's sermon seems a bit odd to you, well, it's because it is odd in the church today. About as odd as it would be to see a dodo bird in Decula. The church has much to repent of and return to. And even in churches like ours who believe in church discipline, we still have much to learn. We have not always handled things correctly. We have a lot to learn and a lot to repent of. We live in a soft age, fearful of hurt feelings, fearful of being labeled judgmental or hateful. We live in a confused age where we overlook sins that should be confronted in love. And sometimes we confront sins that should be overlooked in love. And so we need to hear Jesus' words and do much self-examination both individually and corporately. And to the unbeliever here in the room this morning, I know this seems really, really odd to you. Odder than a dodo bird in Decula. 
And all I can say is that just as a lack of discipline in our earthly homes leads to chaos and turmoil, so too lack of discipline in God's family leads to chaos and turmoil. And thus, the loving thing for any real church to do is to confront sin. And the most loving thing we can do for you this morning, if you're here and you're an unbeliever, is to confront your sin. To help you see that you are a rebel. You are an insurrectionist who has sinned against an infinitely holy, good, and just God. And that the just payment for your sin is death and eternal separation in hell. We must tell you that. We must confront you with that. Not because we hate you, but because we love you and we want you to repent. We want you to turn from your sin. We want you to seek God for forgiveness. We want you to put all your hope in Jesus Christ, that he took the wrath of God on your behalf, that he lived the life you couldn't live, and so that you will receive from him eternal life and salvation. We love you that much that we know you need to see your sin before you can ever see salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge how weak each and every one of us in this room are. As we were looking at the gospel grid this morning, I couldn't help but think about this text here today, that part of our struggle with dealing with church discipline in the church is because, number one, we don't have a sufficient view of our own sinfulness. And so sometimes we confront sins in a manner that we shouldn't, or we ignore sins. And we ignore sins usually because we don't have the other extreme. We don't understand your holiness. So, Lord, I pray that we would have that biblical gospel balance where we see your absolute holiness and we see our utter depravity and we run to the cross. We trust in the gospel. And that means that we have to confront sin when it pops up in the church. Especially sin that's causing a breach, that's causing disruption, that's bringing division and disharmony to the body. But Lord, we, we know we need wisdom. Jesus, you are our wisdom. The scriptures say you are our wisdom. And so if we try to come up with some sort of matrix by which we can measure all these things based upon our wisdom, we'll fall way short and we'll continue to fail to practice church discipline in a manner that brings you glory. But Jesus, if we'll rely on you and we'll seek you earnestly, humbly, then I believe you are with us and you will give us the wisdom to make good decisions. And Holy Spirit, we need you to be our comforter. We need you to be our counselor. We need you to be our the one who stirs up our conscience so that we can readily admit when we have sinned, when we have hurt a brother. And so that if someone comes to us one-on-one and says to us that we have sinned against them, we won't be stubborn. We won't be stiff-necked. But we will submit to the Spirit and ask you to Examine our hearts and show us any blind spots we may have. And Lord, we all have plenty of them. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune, glorious God, we ask you to be the one who helps Harbin's Community Baptist Church be a church that conforms to Jesus' words in this text. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.